Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. And so today as we're wrapping up our series through the book of Jonah, we're going to be looking at chapter 4 here in just a minute. I think it's really quick, that, really quickly, it's, it's good for us to dive back into um, uh, the, the, the points that we've really been trying, the goals that we've been trying to achieve through this series. And number one, we've been looking at, hopefully and praying for, that God, through this series, will develop in us a greater appreciation for His love that pursues us even when we run away from Him. And I hope you've seen that, and I hope that maybe through this series, you've become more aware, even in the past couple of weeks, of God's pursuing love and grace for you. That God's grace never runs out, it just keeps chasing after you at all times. And then secondly, I hope, and this is where we're really going to drill down today, is that I hope that we develop a love for others, a deeper love for others, because even those who seem that they don't deserve grace, or that they're far from God, or that they're different from us, they deserve grace as well. Even the crazy guy on the interstate that blows past you and maybe flips you off or maybe shows, shows less than grace to you that we're willing to give grace to those who are, in our minds, not deserving of it. It's because when we started this series, we introduced the major theme that all four chapters of this rest on. And our major theme, and let's read this aloud together today. The main theme or the main big idea of this entire thing, it's on the screen. Let's read it aloud together. Because of his relentless love, God doesn't give up on us even when we give up on him. Now here's what I want to do. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you, and I want you to personalize this, that because of his relentless love, God doesn't give up on you. So take just a second and say that to your neighbor. All right, now let's personalize it even more, okay? We've done collectively, we've done the person around you, now let's speak to the innermost part of our being. Because of God's relentless love, God does not give up on me, even when I give up on him. Because we may sit there all smug and pious and say, I've never given up on God, but we'd be lying. There are times when we question. There are times when we say, God, I don't know if I agree with how you're handling things right now. I don't know if I agree with this passage of Scripture. And so I'm going to find a way to kind of like, you know, get around that or find a, a, a loophole to that. I don't agree with you, God, so therefore I'm giving up on you, God. See, we can be real hardcore about Jonah, but we're a lot more Jonah than we, than we would like to give ourselves credit for. So, and most of you have been with us for the entire series, so I'm going to give you a really fast rundown of, Jonah's, of Jonah chapters 1 through 3. Remember in Jonah chapter 1, what happens? God comes to Jonah, his prophet, and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach a message to the Ninevites. I'm going to give you the message. You don't even have to study for it. I'm going to give you the message when you get there. Just go, and I'll be with you. And Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh. Those people are nuts. Those people hate me, and quite frankly, I hate them. So he says to God, I'm out. I'm out of the prophet business. He goes down to Joppa. He gets on a boat and heads towards Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of where God wants him to go. And hopefully what we've learned by now, and Jonah, I don't know if he read Scripture at all, even though he's a prophet, I don't know if he, he realized in all those times that he looked at Scripture that people who ran from God and did what God didn't want did not succeed at that. But Jonah thought he could. And what I think is interesting is in chapter 1 he says, he tried to run away from the presence of the Lord. He thought he was better off without God in disobedience than he was with him in obedience. 
And so Jonah runs, and then what happens? God sends this huge storm that just rips the seas apart and is about to rip apart the boat that he's on. And so he says, look, it's me. Throw me over. Throw me into the ocean, and everything will get good. And he was right. As minute he, the minute the sailors throw him into the ocean, after, the, after those sailors had become believers in God themselves, the sea stopped immediately. It's like God just flipped a switch on the ocean. And then in chapter 2, what we see, or last, last verse of number of chapter 1, we see that God prepares this great whale or this great fish to come and swallow Jonah whole and take him down to the depths of the ocean. And then chapter 2, as he's in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, Jonah finally prays to God. What's interesting is he doesn't necessarily apologize. He doesn't say, I'm wrong. He just says, God, get me out of here, and I'll do what you want me to do. So he's bargaining with God. Again, God proves I'm sovereign, I'm in control. And so immediately after Jonah prays this prayer, the whale projectile vomits him out whole, not dead, but alive, probably more alive than he's ever been, out onto the seashore. And then basically Jonah's left to keep up with what God had, with, with the promise that he had made God is tell me what to do, tell me where to go, and I'll do it, no questions asked. And so, Jonah, and so God comes to him in chapter 3 and he says, hey, you remember Nineveh? Remember what I said in chapter 1? Same thing. I want you to go to Nineveh. This time Jonah goes to Nineveh, he walks into the city, and he preaches a seven-word sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And that's the message that God gave to him. And Jonah's like, man, I like that message. I, I wish I'd known that before. I'd come. I'm going to come with there. I'm going to proudly pronounce in 40 days, you all are destroyed. But something happened that he didn't expect. Because he hated them so much, he didn't think they had it in them to repent. But he did. And they did. So God's grace to Jonah turned into God's grace to Nineveh because God grace showed grace to Jonah and he went and he preached the message. Then the people of Nineveh heard the message and they repented. See, the grace wasn't in, God is going to destroy you. The grace was in, you got 40 days. And they didn't wait 40 seconds before the king pronounced a fast over them and over the animals and they all got right with God. And the Bible says in this greatest, greatest verse of grace, in the last verse of chapter 3, it says God relented from the destruction that he was going to send. So now let's pick up in chapter 4 and see how everything goes. Because, you know, all this happens and we see the relentless love and grace at work in the lives of those pagan sailors, in the life of Jonah the reluctant prophet, in the life of a wicked city like Nineveh. You'd think at this point that Jonah would be feeling great, Right? You'd think at this point that Jonah's on cloud nine. I know as a preacher, if I were to preach a message seven words long, and it led to citywide revival, and the mayor gets right with God and starts decreeing all of these holy ordinances, I think I'd be feeling pretty good. But Jonah's not right, guys. There's just something wrong with Jonah, because let's look at what it says in verse number one. <sighs> Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Again, I don't know if this guy's stable. Maybe he inhaled too many fish fumes or something. But he's greatly displeased at this citywide revival, at these great enemies of him and his people coming to God and getting right. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was in my own country? Now, you remember when I said back in week one, you have to come back to week four to get the real reason Jonah didn't want to go? So number one, Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh because Nineveh was nuts. These people were awful, wicked nasty people. He feared for his life. But here's the real reason he didn't want to go. He said, this is why I fled to Tarshish in the first place, because I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, that you're slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. 
So the real reason that Jonah didn't want to go was not because he was afraid of Nineveh. It's because he hated Nineveh too much to carry grace. Catch that. He hated Nineveh too much, so much that he refused to carry God's grace to them. Verse number three. Now look how far he's gone in his hatred. And now, Lord, take my life from me because it's better for me to die than to live. I don't want to live in a world, God, where your grace abounds to the people I hate, is what he's saying. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there, and he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. And when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered away. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Second time, God's not doing what he wants. And he's like, just take me away. Just get me out of here. And then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He says, yes, it's right. He replied, I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, Jonah, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us this morning as strongly as you spoke to Jonah. As strongly and as convictingly as you spoke to Jonah because many of us myself included. We need this. We need this. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever seen the movie Inception? It was a weird, wacky movie that came out like several years ago. It starred Leonardo DiCaprio. The movie is like, by film critics, everybody loves it, but it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, you got the, the, the he's like, Leonardo DiCaprio ends up finding himself trapped in this dream world where everything is just kind of like morphed and moving around and the roads just kind of like curve up and all this weird stuff is going on. And the thing is, is that he's got this little top that he carries with him all the time. And as long as that top is spinning, he's come to discover as he's trying to get out of this dream world and get back to his family, he's discovered that as long as that top is spinning, it signifies that he's still trapped in the dream. But when the top stops, the dream is over and he's back in reality. So the end of the movie, he finally is reunited with his family, and his family is so happy to see him and everything, and everything looks like it's finally closed off, but the very last scene of the movie is the top. The top that was laid down gets up and starts spinning again, and then it goes to the end credits. And it's like, you're left going, what's going on, man? Did he get out? Did he not? You're left with this open-ended question of what's going on, and when you look at the book of Jonah, isn't that kind of the way it ends, too? See, we're so used to having happy endings. We're so used to having closure and everything wraps up in 30 minutes, you know, with our sitcom society, right? Remember Full House? You know, when everybody, when everybody in, the, in the house would be like, you know, faced with all of these horrible drama, uh, these horrible dramatic moments and these just like life crises and within 30 minutes everything gets good and Uncle Jesse comes up with these words of wisdom and a nice song plays and everything goes, goes good and you're, you're so glad that you watched it on Friday night, right? Anybody else miss TGIF? All right. It was just simple. It was good. It was compact. It was something I could chew on for a little while, and then I could get back to my life. But here's how Jonah ends. Jonah ends with us not knowing what's going to happen. 
We don't know what happens to Nineveh. We don't know what happens to Jonah. We don't know what Jonah's response is. Everything is just left wide open. You're reading verse number 11, and you're like, okay, and where's chapter 12? Did I buy a copy of the scriptures that just like left it out? Are they conserving ink? What's going on? No, this is the end of the book. This is the end of the story. We're left with a question. It's open-ended. And I think that's there for two reasons. Number one, to signify, as I said, Jonah's got some issues. Jonah, it's like, read the room, Jonah. Everything that you've gone through in your life, in this whole story, has shown you that God is a God that's full of grace. And that since God is a God full of grace, he's anxious and he's ready and he's willing to give it to those who will repent and those who will come to him. Even the worst people you can think of. But Jonah is mad about it. Jonah has a problem with it. He thinks that God shouldn't show grace to everyone. There's just something wrong with him. But before Jonah says, he, doesn't, he never even says awesome. He never even says thank you. He never even worships God for what he did. He's just mad at Jonah. He's just kind of left like, why'd you do this, God? And then he's basically saying, after God sent a whale to protect him, after God put a shade tree there, after God did all of these things to show grace to him, he never even says thank you. He never even says way to go, God. He just basically says, just kill me. I don't want to live in this world where you show grace. Something's wrong. And the second reason I think that we're left with this open-ended question is because it forces us to personalize and wrestle with that same question ourselves. You've accepted my grace to you, God says, but will you accept my grace and trust when I give grace to others? Even the ones that you have a hard time with. Will you love others? And I think this is the overreaching question. Will you love others the way that I love you? I think this is the overall question of the book of Jonah. If the overall theme of the book of Jonah is that God's relentless love chases after us and doesn't give up on us, even when we give, at, give, even when we give up on him, then he's asking, will we love others that same way? Because if you fast forward to the New Testament, here's what he says. You will love people like I love you. And you'll be known by the love that you have for one another. So here's the big idea this morning from chapter 4. Is that if I want to love others like God loves me, which is simple obedience to God. This is what he expects of a follower of Christ. If I want to love others the way that God loves me, then I cannot settle for a self-centered faith. I cannot settle for a self-centered faith. Because nothing will get in the way of a love for others than a faith that is centered on myself than a Christianity where all I'm in it for is what I can get out of it. Because newsflash, the gospel is not about us. The gospel, first and foremost, is about God's glory in Jesus Christ. And the gospel, once we have it, it's good for us, but it's better when we give it to others as well. That's why we're left here to begin with. That's why God gave Jonah a second chance. That's why we were given that second chance in the grace of God. So Jonah, if we look back real quickly again, just kind of just look at a couple of things that we need to point out from, first, from, from chapter 4. It says, the Bible says that Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. What was he displeased and furious about? The repentance and the revival that took place in Nineveh. He's greatly displeased, and he is furious. Now, in the Hebrew, that word that we see displeased or angry or wroth, it translates to being evil and sinful and of no righteous intent. So what this is saying is, not only is he angry, it's not righteous anger. It's outright rebellious anger towards God. And here's the thing. You may be angry at God right now 
for the way he's handling your life or the way he's handling somebody else's life. But know this, if you're in opposition to God's will, it's not righteous anger, it's sinful anger. So Jonah is opposed to God's grace towards Nineveh. And again, what I find so weird is here is God's man in complete and total opposition to God's plan. In complete and total opposition to God's plan. And then we see the word furious, which comes from the Hebrew that means to be burning and seething with anger to the point of losing control. What it means is I'm so enraged with anger, I have lost control of my faculties and all sense of reason. Which is why I think we see verse number three where he turns suicidal. He's become so overwhelmed and, and he's nurtured his anger and his hatred and his prejudice so much towards Nineveh that he's lost control over the grace of God being shown on them. And he's basically saying, I can't live in a world where your grace abounds to people that I don't think deserve it. That's pretty severe. But that's verse number one. Because God showed grace to people that needed it. It's like a Christian getting mad that revival breaks out in our city. When it all boils down to it, Jonah's seething in anger because he didn't, God didn't treat Nineveh the way he thought they should be treated. So now let's give credit where credit is due. In verse number two, Jonah at least takes his anger to the right source. He takes it to God. He doesn't just sit down and pout. He takes it to God, and he basically confronts God on this. And he's like, what in the world are you doing? You know that this is the reason I ran from you in the first place. Why in the world would you send me back and do this? That's just mean, man. Couldn't you find somebody else to have done this and left me to do the stuff that I want to do? Doesn't that sound familiar? In verse number two, he says, he prayed, Lord, please, this isn't, isn't this what I said while I was in my own country? This is why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're gracious. I knew that you're compassionate. I knew that you're slow to anger. And I knew that when I went to Nineveh, you were going to forgive them. And I didn't want that to happen. Translation, God, I know you're full of grace and mercy and compassion. And I'm going to take all I can get of that for myself. But these godless pagans don't deserve an ounce of it, and you should have just rained down judgment on them the moment I walked in there. And here's what he says. I'm going to go up on this hill, and I'm sitting here waiting to see if you'll finally do the right thing. So in verse number three, Jonah gets all up in his feelings, right? I mean, he's so possessed by his anger and all of it, and his hopelessness by seeing God's grace. Can you, can you imagine hopelessness at the vision of God's grace? What in the world? And he says... Take my life from me. If this is the way you want to run the world, God, take me out of it. I refuse to live in a world where your grace abounds to my enemies. If you're not going to kill them, then kill me. There's a, there's a measure of an ultimatum there, isn't it? Jonah, God's prophet, God's chosen man, the one that God had used many times to preach his message. Look, I'm your man. And what I'm telling you is, it's them or it's me. Make a choice, because we both can't live here. It's them or it's me. I mean, can you imagine giving God an ultimatum like that? I think we can probably imagine it more than we think we can because we do it a lot more than we admit that we do. Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, but I assure you this is not the way he wanted us to do it. So in verse number five, after delivering this ultimatum, Jonah finds a high place in a neighboring city and he goes and he pops his popcorn. He sets up a little camp because he's going to watch and see if God will finally come around and choose Jonah and Jonah's way and do the right thing and make Jonah happy and kill off 120,000 Ninevites. And at this point, you're probably thinking, why doesn't God just go ahead and answer Jonah's request and kill him? 
I mean, how many times does Jonah have to like just defy God and tell God, you're crazy. I don't want to do what you're doing. I'm not on board with your plan. I don't want to do any of this. He's nothing but a problem since the word jump. He ran away when God said, when God said to go to Nineveh the first time, he didn't even say he was sorry. He's basically just like, get me out of this, and I guess I'll do what you want to I'll do what you want me to do. But in verse number six, instead of giving Jonah what he deserved, God gives grace again. Verse number six. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and grew, it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. That word appointed shows up again. Back in chapter one, we see a couple of things that God appointed back then. He appointed a storm, or he sent a great wind to cause a storm to redirect Jonah where he needed to go. God's grace, number one. God's grace, number two. He appointed great fish to come and swallow Jonah up and protect him and to hold him for three days while Jonah got his head worked out. And his heart worked out. He got his head worked out, but we don't know about his heart. And then now we see God appoints this, this shade tree to come up. Because Jonah, in his anger, doesn't even realize he's picked a place that is not habitable at all. And he's basically going to die of dehydration up there. Because he's so seething in his anger that he hasn't even thought about what's good for him. But God did. And in his grace, he causes the shade tree to come up over him where he can spend the night. But then you see this word, greatly pleased. God was greatly pleased with the plant. Isn't this ironic? God was greatly displeased by God's grace to Nineveh, but all of a sudden, when grace is shown to him, now all of a sudden, he's greatly pleased. Again, the thing about Jonah, man, he's consistent. Jonah's going to be about Jonah, isn't he? And I think there's a lot of times I can insert, Derek's going to be about Derek, right? You could insert your name there if you'd like to as well. And then in verse number, verses 7 and 8, we see the next morning God appoints a worm to attack the plant, and it shrivels up and it dies. He appoints, again, the scorching east wind that comes, and it basically burns down upon his head, and he's sitting there. He's angry. He's mad. He was thankful for the shade tree, and now all of a sudden God sent the shade tree away. And for the second time in this narrative, God asks Jonah to check himself. In verse number 9, he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Is it right for you to be angry about showing grace to Nineveh, he said back in verse number four? And finally, and here's how I read it. I read Jonah just hauling off and screaming at the skies. Yes, it's right, I'm angry. I don't want to follow a God who's gracious to people that I hate. I'm angry enough to die, and I've asked you so many times through all of this, just get me out of here. Why do you keep me around? Because none of this is about Jonah. None of this is about you and me. We may have questions as to why God is operating the way he operates, but it's not about us. It's about us returning glory to him and walking the road that he has chosen for us, knowing that he walks with us the whole way, chases us with his grace, and wants to make us a billboard of grace to others. And we can go kicking and screaming, or we can go happily in the way that God has chosen for us to go. The choice is up to us. But life and death are in the hand of the Creator, and He chooses when that will take place. Still, Jonah is only thinking about himself. He says, look, God, you've obviously made your choice. I said it's them or me. You've obviously chosen them, so just get rid of me. 
Why didn't God choose his man over these worthless sinners and these outcasts? And this is why, because God's grace extends far and wide and deep. And to accept his grace means to also accept the recipients of his grace as well. Verse number 10, God's remind Jonah that he provided that plant for Jonah's comfort, even though he did nothing to deserve it. He didn't grow it, he didn't water it, he didn't tend to it, yet when it withered, he was mad at God like he deserved it or like he had owned it. And this is the same thing that God has done for us. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve the gift of the cross. We don't deserve eternal life. We didn't do anything to cause it to come to pass. It was God's grace, God's plan, God's mercy, God's redemption applied to our need. And God sees fit to show grace to anyone and everyone who would believe. When we start thinking, man, I'm worth something, we are in very close danger to start thinking that others aren't. And it's God's desire that we love others in the same way that he loved Jonah, that he loved Nineveh in the same way. But you see, this is all part and parcel of the culture that Jonah was raised in. Jonah was reared in this culture saying that the Jewish people had lost sight of why God had chosen them in the first place. The whole reason that God had chosen as his people the Jews was so that other nations could be blessed by seeing how he blesses them. It wasn't so that they could be great and high and mighty above everybody else's God's chosen people. It was so that they could serve the world by showing grace to the world. You know what? That's the essence of our salvation as well. The essence of our salvation is not to be better than everybody else. The essence of our salvation is to serve those who need grace. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says they, had, they, had, uh, uh, they were told to be a blessing to the nations through, through the people. And this developed as an elitist superiority towards Gentiles. They let it kind of develop from being a servant to being superior, and it carried on even into Jesus' days with the scribes and the Pharisees. We've talked about this many times when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. They thought, hey man, it's all, grace is all about us. God is all just about us, and he hates everybody else. And then it even carried over into the church after Jesus ascended when people in the church were saying, hey, yeah, it's great to trust Jesus, but if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be committed, you've got to adopt the Jewish ways when Jesus had already completed everything at the cross. And with that in mind, I want to revisit this big idea. If I want to love others like God loves me, then I must deny a self-centered faith. Jonah was self-centered in his service, self-centered in his faith, and we run the risk of that every single day of our lives. So the question I want us to consider this morning as we quickly go over four practical things, and when I say quickly, I mean quickly. Am I practicing a self-centered faith? We need to consider a couple of things. Number one, if I want to practice an others-centered faith, to avoid a self-centered faith, I need to find my identity in Jesus Christ. How can I avoid a self-centered faith? I need to find my identity in Jesus Christ. Jonah's problem was that he lost his identity in, God, in being God's creation, and he found his identity in other things. This is important in the culture that we live in today because we live in a culture that all it wants to do is attach a label and put us into a silo and say, you belong in this piece over here and this piece doesn't line up with this piece, so these pieces go at it all the time. 
That's not the gospel. It's just not. Find your identity in Christ. We live in in a place where we have identity options all around, but really all it boils down to is an identity crisis. We identify by race, by gender, political party. Come on, help me out here. Income level, sexual preference, immigration status, our religion. Name it, you've got it. We have so many subcultures in our culture today that we don't know how to get along with one another. We don't know when we look at a person if they're even human anymore because that's what we've let happen with our identity. We find our identity in those labels, and it always causes friction and division among those groups, and it will always hinder our ability to see people the way that God sees them. Not as a Republican or a Democrat, not as gay or straight, not as black or white, but as my creation that I love. This is exactly what Jonah was guilty of. He kept his primary identity as, I am a member of the Jewish people, and therefore I'm superior. And he also said, I'm a prophet of God, and that makes me superior among my superior people. He had lost his identity in the fact that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. The only antidote to that is Jesus. To the identity crisis is Jesus Christ. The only way to get past this is to find our identity at the cross because when we come to the cross, we're all the same. We're all the same. We all need it. We all need grace. We all need mercy. It's about knowing that God loves me so much that he pursued us when we were far away from him and he calls out to us to draw us to himself. It's knowing that when he had every right to destroy us in, his, in our sin, he saw fit to bruise his son so that we might live. It's knowing that John 3.16 doesn't just apply to me or the people like me. John 3.16 applies to God so loved all the world. It's knowing that when you peel away the nations and the flags and the bumper stickers and the skin color and the political agendas, we're all the same sinner in need of Jesus Christ. So I beg you, find your identity in Christ and see others in that same light. And the second thing we have to do if we want to avoid a self-centered faith is we have to engage the gospel every day. And what that means is I got to get up and I got to preach the gospel to myself again every single morning. Jeremiah says God makes his mercies new to me every morning. And the greatest act of mercy that God has ever given us is the gospel. So preach it to yourself every morning that a perfect, sinless God would be required to pay the debt for a wicked, sinful humanity makes no sense in any court, in any legal system whatsoever. The greatest injustice the world has ever known is the injustice or the injustice of the gospel because grace is amazing because it's so unjust. It defies all conventional wisdom that a perfect and innocent Christ would look down from his peak And look down from the peak of his suffering and look at the people who were putting him to death and say, God, have mercy on them and forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the same God that looked at Nineveh who was killing and pillaging and doing awful things to his people and he said, I will forgive them for they do not know their right from their left. The gospel message puts us in our place. This is another reason we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Those of us who live under grace have a tendency to forget how good we've got it. We begin to think we deserve it. 
So this is why we engage with the gospel every day because it's so abnormal, so unreasonable, so countercultural that we have to revisit often if we are to remain in Christ-like in our motives and in our view and our vision of the world. Sometimes the reason that we forget to give grace is because we've forgotten the gospel that brought grace to us. And the third thing we have to do is be a grace giver. You don't want to be self-centered in your faith. Be a grace giver. Grace is so easy to receive, but it's so difficult to give. Jonah loved the plant, but he hated when it went away. Jonah loved having forgiveness and loved having everything rerouted in the fish when he was standing on the shore, I'm sure of you. He probably didn't love it when he was there, but when he was delivered, he probably loved the fact that he was delivered. But then he still didn't want to give grace to anyone. Grace received compels us to pass it on to others. Jesus reminded us in the book of Luke chapter 6, he says, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. And he said in chapter 12, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. The gospel means we've been given much, which means much is expected of us to share it. See, it's easy to criticize Jonah for being stingy with his mercy and grace. But before casting that stone, we need to make sure that we step out of our glass house. To God's grace extends to each one of us a second chance. So how many second chances have you been given? How many sec- When I think about the second chances I've been given, I'm like, man, there's so many of them. But how many do I offer to others? How many do I offer to them? God's grace runs after us even when we run out on him. How motivated am I? How motivated are we, Graceway Church, to run after others who seemingly run out on us or have wronged us? God's grace reaches us at the point when we deserve it the least, but we need it the most. How motivated are we to show grace to those who have hurt us the most? And then lastly, as we close out this morning, we need to learn to embrace the discomfort of serving Jesus. Embrace the discomfort of serving Jesus. Whoever said that following Jesus was going to be comfortable? See, we look at heaven, we look at the streets of gold, we look at eternal life, we look at no tears, and we think, man, that's the most comfortable life ever. But that's the life to come, not this life. What he said about this life, go to the Beatitudes for it. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the brokenhearted, blessed are you when you are persecuted and all things are said falsely against you for my sake. That's the Christian life now. I love what Mark Middleberg says in the Contagious Church. says, Christians are all for evangelism and outreach and reaching the lost for Christ until those people start taking our parking spot or sitting in our pew or bringing kids who don't behave like the way we like it or bringing worship music that we can't relate to. Then our comfort becomes more important than the souls of those other people. We want to see the lost saved, but sometimes we'd rather they got saved somewhere else. See, this quote really describes Jonah, doesn't it? I'm sure Jonah, he would, he would have to turn in his prophet card if he says, I don't want Nineveh to be saved. He wouldn't ever say it. Actually, he said it to God, though. But I'm sure he'd be like, okay, if, if he heard that somebody else went and preached the message, I don't think he'd be as mad as he was now. You actually used me to do it. Why can't somebody else do that, do the dirty work? As long as God kept Jonah in his bubble of comfort preaching and preaching to the people that he wanted to preach to, saying the things that he knew the people would like, he's all for it. But the minute God said, I want you to step out of your comfort zone where you only have me and my glory to carry you, he's like, no, I'm out. 
And then when God started dishing out grace to undesirables, not only did he not want to follow God, he hated him. He got mad at God. Does this quote describe us? Does that describe our spirit? Man, I'm all into following God as long as I get to follow him the way that I'm comfortable following him. But if he's calling me out on a ledge or if he's calling me out to a place where I'm uncomfortable or I have to talk to people that I don't know or maybe even like, I don't know about this. So we get so used to our bubble that anything outside that bubble feels wrong. And when God's will begins to feel wrong to us, something's wrong with us. Following Jesus is never presented as comfortable, ever. Scripture doesn't describe the Christ life as one of comfort. The comfort of the Christian life is waiting for us after the discomfort of the life that we now live. Here's what Jesus said. Take up your cross and follow me. What's comfortable about that? He said, deny yourself. I don't like denying myself, do you? He said, be happy when you're persecuted for me. And then he said, expect to be hated like I was hated. That, sounds, that doesn't sound comfortable. None of that sounds comfortable. Following Jesus will take us out of our comfort zone and require us to embrace the unembraceable to love others the way that he loves them. So for the Christian today, our Nineveh is not 500 miles away. It's all right here, all around us. See, we don't have to go to Nineveh. We're in Nineveh. We're in it. We live in a world where our culture has largely turned from God and they've turned to idols. Material possessions, status, power, reputation, sex, alcohol. We've made self a God. We are our own God. Because of that, marriages are falling apart. Homes are being upended. People from different political parties and persuasions can't even engage in civil discourse anymore, even at the highest level. Children and teachers are often being killed in our schools. People are being judged and scrutinized for the color of their skin, and we're fighting and waging war with one another behind our keyboards and out in the streets. And homeless people all the while go without the things that they need and oftentimes go without the things that they need from the hands of a people, the church of Jesus Christ, that was called to help meet those needs. So we don't have to go to Nineveh. We're living in the middle of it. And we're posed with that decision today as a child of God, redeemed and engulfed by grace. Will I go into Nineveh and will I love those who are different from me in the same way that God loves me? Or am I going to make life all about me and all about surviving in the greatest amount of comfort that I can get while I just wait to be ushered into glory and I will just watch the rest of the world go to hell in the process? You say, dude, that is a harsh question. But that's the harsh reality of Jonah. Jonah, are you content to just live a comfortable life while watching the rest of the world go to hell? And really, that's what we've come to in our culture today. Upset that I can't be comfortable in my faith because the culture's turning away from it. What do you expect a culture that knows not God to do? What do we expect them to do? but to move further away from him if they don't know him. And what are we expected to do in a world that doesn't know him when we do know him? So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning,
I'm just going to end the message in the same way God ended the book. I'm going to end with a tough question that makes you squirm because it makes me squirm. And I've squirmed all week working on this, on this message, so it's time that you squirm with me. What are we going to do about it? What do we do about it? See, we don't know what happened with Jonah. I don't know. I don't know what happened with him. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. He leaves the biblical narrative after this question. So what's our response? What response can we come to after this series? Well, the first thing, obviously, is if you don't know Christ as your Savior, come to Him. Trust Him as your Savior. The God who can move the oceans, a God who can move the fish of the sea, a God who can provide shade when you need it, He is a God who will provide salvation, and only He can provide it. If you don't know Christ as Savior, come to Him today. Let today be the day of salvation. But if you know Christ, and, we're, and we've come to the point where we understand I'm guilty of a self-centered faith, then what we must do is repent of that self-centered faith. And then we also have to become others focused in our love and in our grace. I don't know how God has spoken to your heart this morning. I do know this, that God's word never returns void. That means that he's spoken today. The only thing that is left to be answered is whether we listened. We listened. So as we respond to him this morning, ask him to just speak to your heart and ask him to be, if you would be open and willing to do as he says. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.